You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember, then, what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so there was a classic movie about, released about 30 years ago, titled Weekend at Bernie's. And the premise of the movie is these two young uh, employees at an insurance company, after a series of events, they get invited to the boss's vacation home, I believe it was in the Hamptons, uh, for this fun, extravagant, rich weekend of partying with Bernie. So they show up, knock on the door, no one answers, they let themselves in, they go to sit down next to Bernie, but they find out there's a little problem, Bernie's dead. Bernie's dead. And so afraid that they're going to be, you know, accused of having some part in his death, they're the first ones to find him dead, and also being pretty disappointed about this weekend of fun being ruined by Bernie's death, they come up with a plan. And the plan is to convince everyone that Bernie is still alive. And so that's just what they do throughout the entire movie. They prop him up in chairs. They tie him up leg to leg and walk like the three-legged walk thing. They, they attach strings to his hands so he waves as people are going by. And here's the craziest thing. People are convinced. They're buying it. They're walking up and saying, hey, Bernie, fun weekend or fun party. Everyone is buying it all the way down to his lover. Now, that is a mystery. I'm just going to have to take to the grave how that works out. But everyone is convinced that he is still alive. Now, while this is actually a pretty hilarious uh, plot line when it fits into a comedy, it's actually pretty tragic when the story of propping up a dead body describes the experience of a local church. And that's exactly what we have here in the letter to Sardis. This is a Christian community that has, quote, a reputation of being alive. They're going through the motions. They're waving their hands. They're involved in the community. They're going about their business. Everyone is convinced all the while they're dead. And they're carrying out what are considered dead works. As one author titled this letter to the church in Sardis, this is an autopsy of a deceased church. See, sometimes we study the lives of faithful men and women in Scripture to be reminded of the kind of lives that we're called to. The like, oh, yes, this is what we've been called to. And then sometimes we have to study the fate of churches like the church in Sardis to be reminded of the kind of deaths that we need to avoid. 
And so this is a very ex- extremely important topic for us, and it's a relevant one. This is not just a problem that we see in the first century. This is a problem we see in the 21st century. In fact, Tom Rainier and a trusted research group called LifeWay teamed up to do a pretty extensive survey on the church in America as a whole, just studying the church in America today. And this is what they found. Their rough findings were these. That about 10% of churches are what they would consider, based on a biblical metric, healthy churches. About 40% show symptoms of sickness. About 40% very sick or like in the ICU status. And then 10% of churches in America are dying. This is the current state. In fact, this was probably about 10 years ago. And I'll leave it up to you to wonder if it's an upward or a downward trend that we're seeing in our midst. So as we've seen in weeks past, these letters to, this, to, to the seven churches from Jesus to his church typically follow the same sort of basic uh, pattern. It begins with a reminder, then an encouragement, then a warning, then a promise. This one sort of breaks the mold. Sardis is unique, and not in like the good snowflake sort of way, but it's sort of unique in a bad way. So we're going to break away from the pattern that we see in the other letters, and we're going to begin with the first point, and it's this, the words of Jesus. The words of Jesus. Now, a conversation about us, and listen to me, a conversation about us must begin with a conversation about Jesus. To understand us, we have to understand Christ, especially when that conversation is potentially bringing to light some extremely harsh realities about ourselves. Because without a reminder of the character of God to anchor us, a a number of things can happen. We get lost, we grow discouraged, we grow despairing, and that is not the point behind this letter. Jesus is not writing this to simply discourage the church. He has a greater motivation, which we'll get to in just a moment. And so he first anchors them in his character. Look with me in Verse 1, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So what Jesus does is he reminds his church of a few things. First, I love this, he addresses this church, he addresses this letter rather to the angel, aka the messenger of the church in Sardis. And so what this tells us is as dysfunctional as things have gotten here in this city, and as bleak as things may seem in this church, Jesus is still relating to them as his people. Jesus is still calling them his church. He has not revoked that title. No amount of hurt or brokenness or death that is existing in them can cause him to forsake his love for them. Jesus remains faithful to them and calls them his own and calls them back to life. There's power in this identification as the church. You're still my people. Listen to how God is described elsewhere in scriptures in Isaiah 42. A bruised reed he will not break and a faint, faintly burning wick he will not quench. So picture this with me, a candle As it's melted down, all the wax is gone, and it's on its very last bit. And it's just a little bit of smoke coming up. This this is the picture that God is describing here. And he says, I will not quench even that. 
This is not a picture of a God who's roaming the world looking for his power team of the best and the brightest and the busiest and the most passionate people out there. This is a picture of a God who is searching for the dying flame in order to fan it to life. He also describes himself as him who has the seven spirits of God. What does that mean? I don't know. I don't. But it's most widely uh, believed that this is a reference, sort of an imaginative way of describing the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. John, who's our author, the messenger, all throughout this book of Revelation, 22 chapters, never uses the term or the name Holy Spirit. But he uses this phrase, the seven spirits, multiple times. Times. And, and it's believed that he's most likely describing the spirit and his completeness, seven being a, a, a picture of completeness. And so assuming that this is the spirit that, that Jesus is talking about, Jesus is the one who has and sends the Holy Spirit. And what I love about this picture is that the Holy Spirit is not described as some sort of lifeless force at work in the universe but it's described here as the breath of life or the breath of God. That's what this word here, pneuma, means. It means the breath of God. And so remember with me, all the way back in Genesis 1 and 2, it says that God formed Adam out of the dust of the earth. And then what does he do? He breathes the breath of life into his nostrils. Before that moment, Adam is just a lifeless hunk of dust and flesh but comes alive when God breathes his breath into him. And what Jesus is saying is this is still who I am. I breathe life into lifeless things. So here's the good news. If you're going to be told you're dead or you're dying, you're gonna wanna hear it from the one who has the seven spirits, the breath of life, who conquered the grave and raises us up with him. Third, this is he who has the seven stars. Again, not certain exactly what this means, but it's believed that he's talking about the seven distinct identities of these churches. We're all one global church unified in the blood of Jesus Christ, and yet we have our own distinct personalities because who God has called us, uh, the giftings, the, the leaders, the situation, the context, the city, all those sort, sort of things help to shape the personality of the church. And yet Jesus is saying, I hold your identity. I hold your personality. Now remember, this series that we're, we're walking through, Dear Church, fits into a bigger uh, walk uh, through the scriptures that we're taking this year, looking at the topic of identity. And what we see here in this specific letter is that Jesus is really touching on the topic of identity. In fact, the word uh, reputation, as well as the twice-used word name in the original language, all mean the same thing. They all mean identity. So there's three mentions, three explicit mentions of identity here. What's Jesus doing? He's challenging their identity. And specifically, he's challenging their false identity. We have false identities, and Jesus loves us enough to challenge them. And the false identity is that they are alive when they are not. And Jesus says, you can fool the world, and you can even fool yourself, but you can't fool me. I see you, I know you, I hold you. Now here's the good news. Jesus has the power 
to give you a true and lasting identity. The best you can do is fake it. And I think a lot of us are here doing that today. The best we can do is prop that thing up until it leans and then prop it once again. But Jesus says, no, 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 I can give you a true and lasting identity. The old phrase, fake it till you make it, get that out of your mind. You're going to fake it until he makes it. The words of Jesus. Secondly, the warning. The warning. Now, something to note here about Sardis that Jesus seems to be alluding to here is that Sardis was a very comfortable city. Very comfortable city. And enjoyed all the benefits of being a major commercial hub in this area. And it also had the protections of being a fortified city on a very steep hillside. In fact, it was so well protected by this steep hill and these high walls that it was known as the impenetrable city. No one's getting in. And so they were so confident in what they had built that for long periods of time, sometimes decades, sometimes even centuries, they didn't even bother keeping men at the watchtowers. Everyone would sleep at night just peacefully and soundly based on these protections that they had. And so history tells us in the 6th century BC, about 600 years before this letter is written, one single Persian soldier climbed the hill, scaled the wall, snuck into the city, opened the door, and left the city completely vulnerable to attack. And the city was completely overtaken without a fight. Without a fight. And it was said, here's the notable thing, that even one man at the watchtower, just one man staying awake, one woman, one child, could have changed the entire fate of the city forever. So keep this in mind when you hear the, this warning again from Jesus. Look at me in, in the second part of verse 1 through 3. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. And strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then that what you've received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now there's something to note here. Jesus says, I will come against you. The church very much like the city, had become so comfortable in their position and so comfortable in all of their sort of past accomplishments that they too had fallen asleep at their post. This is the interesting thing. There is no mention here in scripture or in history that there was any persecution present in Sardis. There's no mention of poverty or any other extenuating circumstances. Many believe that they actually enjoyed a very cordial relationship with the community around them. They, like their city, enjoyed a very sheltered life. And in their comfortable existence, they had left themselves vulnerable. That's what they had in common with the city. This is the difference, though. The difference was that the one who would appear when they least expected it was not going to be a foreign enemy, It was not going to be a spiritual adversary. It was going to be Jesus himself. See, Jesus' appearance can be a comforting picture, but it also can be a frightful picture. 
And it all depends on what side of faith and repentance we stand. It's comforting to the church. It's a frightful thing on the other side of repentance. Remember, this is the Jesus who warns will appear in Sardis. I will come, he says. And this is the same Jesus that said about himself in the, in the book of Matthew, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. That's nothing. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. It's getting real. Now, I remember as a kid, my, I, my parents never said this, but I remember having friends whose parents would say this often. They would say, I brought you into this world, and I what? And I'll take you out. But it was always funny because it was an empty threat. This is not an empty threat. This is not an empty threat. Jesus has the power to give life. Jesus has power to take life. Now, I got to admit, if you're a guest this morning, you need to understand that this, these are probably some of the most, these are probably the harshest terms you can hear from, from Jesus. Okay, so you're getting the full spectrum today. These are some of the harshest terms you can hear, and yet, what we need to see is these are actually some of the most gracious words of Jesus as well. And I say that they're gracious because Jesus is not only offering a warning, but thirdly, he's offering a wake-up call. Wake-up call. See, while the world is content to stand idly by as men and women spiritually just wither away, and we see that even today, and the world is just content to see the, just the charade continue on. What we see in Jesus is something different. He draws near to do something about it. And, and like those scenes in the movie, when, when someone is dying or they're fading away into, into unconsciousness, and there's that voice of that loved one or that voice of that first responder that begins to break through into that fog, and you hear, stay awake, stay awake, stay with me now, listen. This is exactly what Jesus is doing. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying, wake up. You are not dying on my watch, not over my dead body. Wake up. A doctor who specializes in palliative care, which is end-of-life care, think sort of like hospice, describes some of the moments leading up to death. And he describes it like this. During this time, people tend to lose their senses and desires in a certain order. First, hunger, and then thirst are lost. Speech is lost next, followed by vision. The last senses to go are usually hearing and touch. Now think about that. Hunger, thirst, speech, vision, hearing, touch. What I find interesting is that spiritually speaking, the pattern is very similar. The first thing to go is our hunger for God. We stop having that appetite for God and the appetite for his word and the appetite to gather with his people and the appetite to tell people about Jesus. We just, we just lose our appetite. And then we begin to feel that dryness in our soul, uh, giving up on the thirst for, for his righteousness forsaking the fount of life. Third, God begins to sort of drift from our speech. We don't really talk about him much anymore. 
We don't really tell people about him anymore. We don't really even talk to him for that matter. Hunger and then thirst and then speech. And then you lose your vision. You stop seeing God at work in your life. You stop seeing God at work in the world. You just stop seeing God anymore. And then finally, your hearing goes. And you just stop listening to his word entirely. Now, I've read uh, some accounts of people who had temporarily died in a hospital or after a traumatic event. And what many said was that despite being unconscious, or even flatlining for that matter, no sight, no feeling, no other senses, according to their own testimony, they said that they could still hear the voices of the people around them. They could still hear that faint echo and that faint whisper of the loved ones that were around them. So keep this in mind when Jesus says these words in verse 6. He who has an ear... He who is still listening, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here's what I think this all means. It's that if you can hear him speaking, if you can hear Jesus speaking, in other words, if you are willing to listen to these words from Jesus, and you're willing to receive them as his words to you, then it's not too late. It's not too late because the voice of God can actually overcome the power of death. God calls us back to life. This is the voice of the God uh, who speaks life. This is the, the spirit of God that breathes life. If you can hear him, it's not too late. In this wake-up call, Jesus offers actually a journey back to life. This is a road to recovery, a road to healing, if you will, which leads me forth to my fourth point, rather, the way back to life. So that no matter where we find ourselves, some of us may be sleepy, some of us may be sick, some of us may be dying, some of us here may just be like spiritually flatlined, just feeling absolute death. But it doesn't matter where we find ourselves in that spectrum, we too can still experience the reviving life of Jesus because we're hearing him. And so he offers this way back to life. The first thing he says is wake up. Turn to your neighbor and say, wake up. Get used to those words. Because listen to me, you will never stop needing to hear that. My kids, uh, they've got those Fitbits. Leave it to a Simus child to track their steps and sleep. <laughs> and so here's an interesting feature that the Fitbits have. The Fitbit actually has a feature that will buzz them during the day if they've been sitting in one static position for too long. Because the, the rationale is that there's some sort of health risk involved in just being static. Why? Because comfort leads to atrophy, and atrophy leads to decay. So remember, Sardis was defeated, not in the heat of battle, but in their sleep, with their eyes closed. 
And the church is always most vulnerable to spiritual ruin when it is sleepy, when it's tired. Friend, the biggest threat to your spiritual life is not persecution. The biggest threat to your spiritual life is not that atheist coworker with really good arguments. The biggest threat to your spiritual life is comfort and ease. Prove me wrong. Read through history, read through the scriptures. Christianity thrives in times of pressure and atrophies in times of comfort. It thrives when it's under pressure and it breaks down in times of ease. So here's the thing about this call. No matter where you find yourself in your Christianity and where we find ourselves as a church, there are always going to be seasons where we need to fight off the slumber because we're either sleepy, we're sick, we're dying, or all three of those things are just around the corner. So get used to those words. Because Jesus will graciously speak those words over and over again. Wake up. Wake up. Second thing on this road to recovery, this way back to life, is strengthen what remains. Strengthen what remains. So just like someone who suffers from a physical condition will most likely have to enter into a process of physical therapy in order to sort of strengthen what has grown weak, Jesus is essentially saying the same thing. For someone that suffers this spiritual condition, they will need to enter into a process of spiritual therapy, of strengthening of the soul. Now, spiritual sickness or death is almost always the result of a slow, steady drift. I have never met an individual that woke up one day and just said, you know what, I feel like being spiritually dead today. It's that process where you look back over months and years and you think, how did I get here? It's that just slow, steady drift. But here's the thing. The inverse is not true. We drift into spiritual death. We never drift into spiritual life and vitality. Spiritual vitality is always the result of an intentional pursuit of God by faith. There is no route to health Anywhere else other than an intentional pursuit of God, an intentional training. In fact, listen to these words of the Apostle Paul. He says, train yourself for godliness. Get back into the spiritual gym. You know you got that membership. Get back there. For while bodily training is of some value, some of us are more obsessed with our bodies than our soul, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. You want to get back into shape, whip up that body, that's great. But here's a greater pursuit. The strengthening of your soul. The training of your spirit. The training in godliness. Strengthen what remains. Third, he says, remember. Remember. Now, I love this. This is not a passive word. This isn't just like a warm, sentimental thought. This is actually a very forceful, active word. It means to summon. 
So picture a king summoning someone, a subject, into his presence and says, call forth so-and-so with, with authority and force. Bring them into my presence. And this is what we're being commanded to do, to call these things into our presence, to call these things into our mind. And what are we summoning? Jesus makes it clear. Remember what you have received and heard. What is he referring to? He's referring to the gospel. Summon the gospel. The, the, the truth that while we were dead in our trespasses in sin, following the course of a dying world under the condemnation of our rebellion, God being rich in mercy and his love sent his son to live the perfect life that we could not live, to die the sinner's death that we deserved, to raise on the third day to give us new life, who's given us now his Holy Spirit to awaken us and animate our lives, a place in his kingdom, an eternal hope for our future. He says, summon those things back in your mind and keep them. Don't let them leave. It's not enough to think about these things Sunday morning. Monday morning, you need to be calling these things into your mind. Get back here. Get back here. Because without these thoughts, I'm going down. And without these thoughts being summoned into our mind, something else, something else that takes away life, something else that brings decay, something else that brings ruin will fill that place. Remember. He says, repent. 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 Repent means to come back, to, to return. I, I was walking to have uh, to grab lunch a, a couple weeks ago, and I was walking past a, a building just a block north of here, and I, I see one of these little cages that was protecting like the, the water valve or the gas meter, because apparently in downtown Stockton, if it's not caged in, it's walking off, that sort of thing. So there was a cage around it. And there's this bird, and this bird is frantically flying around, and, and I'm looking at this cage, and there's only one way that it could have gotten in, and there's only one way it's going to get out. And there's just this little gap around the cage at, at the very bottom. But it was trying to get free because it was a, a dumb bird, and it didn't think to return to the point of entry. You laugh now, but just wait, because I think in illustrations, I thought this is a picture of us. That's us. We often think that the way to freedom and life is by frantically flying up in our own strength to try to make our way up and out. But Jesus reminds us that the way to life is through humbling ourselves and returning. And so I had another thought, and my thought it was sort of morbid, but um, I thought there's really only one way that this bird is going to live. There's one way out because no one's going to stop and break that cage open for that bird. And it's if this bird in its frantic flight wears itself out so much that it drops to the ground. And there, worn out, breathing its last breath with its head on the pavement, looks over and in that last moment sees its way of escape and breaks through by returning. Sometimes God will allow us to get right to the brink of spiritual death. Sometimes, sometimes Jesus is going to let us hit rock bottom with our head on the pavement in order that we see what we just couldn't see. 
when we're flying around in our frantic self-reliance, or as Jesus would describe, our dead works. Dead works. Jesus says, wake up. Strengthen what remains. Remember and repent. Let's look finally at these white garments, the white garments, verses four through five. Yet, and you'll notice that every single one of these letters always have hope. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. In fact, I'll confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now, truth be told, I did more study on the topic of death than I'd ever really care to, just because I love you guys. And one thing that that kept coming up was that as a person is nearing death, their capacity to hold their fluids in their bowels fail. Thus, they soil themselves. And this may be the idea that is being represented here, that Jesus is talking about a small remnant of people within the church of Sardis who haven't soiled themselves, who are still alive. There's still life present in the church. That may be what Jesus is talking about also. It could be something totally different in reference to to life and death. It could actually be in reference to spiritual uh, uncleanness and spiritual purity. In fact, there are multiple occurrences in the scriptures where white garments are used to describe the righteousness of God that Jesus clothes us in when we are united with Jesus by faith. The the white robes of righteousness that make us worthy to, to stand in the presence of God before his angels justified by faith. Or it could mean the robe of victory. Think, uh, think a golfer who wins the Masters and gets the, the coveted green jacket. And Jesus is referring to the, those who conquer, those who make it across the finish line, who get the white robe. Or it could be something else. Or it could mean all of them. But either way, the promise is the same. And here it is. For those who are his, for those who have been awakened by his spirit, and have been washed in his blood and persevere through the finish line by his grace, for those, Jesus will never blot out our name from this book of life. There's no whiteout bottle next to the book of life. There's a promise to cling to here, and it's the, really the promise that I believe that animates our lives. And it gives us hope, even when we hear these really difficult words, like, wake up, you're dying. And the promise is that for those who are his, God is going to see us through. God will complete the work that he began in us as individuals, and God is going to complete the work that he began in us as a church. And God is going to continue to breathe life into our lives and to empower us to stay awake. This is God saying, I will see you through. Your future's bright. That's the promise. But I want to end with an application here. 
because if I, I feel like I'd miss an opportunity, I'd be remiss not to mention this. He says, the one who conquers. What does conquering mean? It means to overcome. What does it mean to overcome? Well, this passage is describing a small remnant in the church that's still alive, whom he calls conquerors. So here's the application for us today. Here's the application for us as a church. Where there is spiritual death and decay all around, and when there are seasons where the trend seems to be getting worse and worse, where it things, seems like things are just dying away in the church around us, we can live as those who overcome and turn the tide. So just as much as spiritual apathy can become contagious and drag other people down, spiritual life is contagious and can affect change in our church. This is the way that we overcome. And friend, I still believe that the life of Jesus Christ among us is greater than the power of death among us. I just believe that. And that's my hope. That's my hope for my life. That's my hope for this community, that the power of God at work in us is greater than the power of the enemy and greater than the power of death and greater than the power of apathy. It's always greater. Throughout history, God has sent revivals into places where a few things were present. One, Christianity as a whole was sleepy. It lacked vitality. It was on the brink of death. It was barely hanging on. And two, there was a small group of people, small group of men and women, sometimes only one, who refused to fall asleep, who took to the tower, remember the story of Sardis, and prayed for God's spirit to awaken his people. And they prayed prayers like this, God, send your spirit. God, awaken us by your spirit. God, rend the heavens and come down. And through those prayers, entire communities were completely transformed by it. So whenever I need to awaken my own soul, I will typically go back and read through the biographies of, of people involved in revivals. And one that I really love to revisit is a, a series of revivals that took place in the mid-20th century in this obscure, remote island called the Hebrides. And the story goes that the church was just quiet. It was lacking vitality. It was sleepy. It was apathetic. No one showed up. No one went to church. No one cared. And there, was, there, were, there were these two uh, sisters in their 80s. One was completely blind. Both of them almost completely immobile. And yet, they prayed. They said, we can't make it out there to be involved, but we can... We have direct access to heaven in here. And the two of them prayed. And they prayed. And they prayed. And in their prayers, they would remind God of his promises. They would say things like this. God, you said, you promised that you would send water on the thirsty. For your own reputation, pour out your spirit. Because if you don't, how can we trust you? How can we trust your good if you do not fulfill your promises? Send, pour out your spirit. Send your awakening to the church. And God used, listen to me, the fervent prayers of two women in their 80s to open up the floodgates of life where thousands and thousands of people ended up getting saved over the course of just a couple years. And here's the thing. As I'm reading this letter here in Revelation 3, letters like this letter are my hope that God desires to do it again and again. 
because he wouldn't be speaking this to us today unless he was at work to awaken his church. So one more time, turn to your neighbor and say, wake up, because God is in our midst, and he's doing something in our time. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for...